Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. Steve Carter here, and in association with my good friends at Preaching Today and Food for the Hungry, I bring you a podcast that hopefully helps you get better at the craft of teaching and preaching while having your character always lead the way. Well, today I'm excited because I'm fresh off a trip. I flew into Guatemala City, and I got to spend some time with the incredible ministry of Food for the Hungry. Now, we drove five hours up into the mountains, and I saw women being empowered. I saw the church taking ground. I, I met pastors and leaders coming together, and I saw communities being renewed. It, it was an amazing, amazing experience, and I was just once again blown away by the good, good work of Food for the Hungry. A few of us pastors were out there and remarking, uh, just seeing the kingdom of God. Uh, really, really flourishing in an amazing country like Guatemala. If you want to learn more about Food for the Hungry, you can always go to fh.org or you can email me at steve at steveryancarter.com. Well, today I'm excited because I get to interview Sheila Ray Gragwire. And she, um, I don't know if you know her, but you should. You need to. Uh, she is someone in many ways that I think is winning Twitter. Um, I came across her her feed probably about a year ago. And she was talking about uh, the book that she wrote entitled The Great Sex Rescue. I think as pastors, um, we're living in a time where we've got to be able to articulate the realities of sex. Uh, we see it happen um, sometimes, and truth be told, oftentimes from the pulpit, not very well. I've often shied away from this topic, and that's not really, really helpful. But how do you communicate? How do you actually begin to articulate? How, how do you talk about this in a way that doesn't play to unhealthy conversations or create more pressure on women or more shame on women and men? Or How, how do you actually do this? in a way that is true to the text and true to um, what I believe God longs for his people. I went to Sheila and she was so gracious. And I, I really just wanted to wrestle with the central question is, how do you talk about it? How do you teach about it? How, how can we best help rescue the conversation of sex from bad preaching and unhealthy purity culture to get back to maybe what God intended it to be. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sheila. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for joining us on the Crafting Character Podcast. I, I honestly have been wanting to have this conversation um, for many, many months. Um, I, I started following you on Twitter uh, because I kept seeing um, posts that you had written on the great... Uh, and, post about the great sex rescue, um, just showing up in my feed. And I was like, oh my goodness, like <laughs> what this woman is saying is brilliant. And then the thought came to my mind, well, how do we take all of this goodness that she is bringing to the forefront and how does it make it its way to the church? So before we dive into that kind of conversation, how we talk about sex from the, from the platform and, and, and preach honestly about, um, the healthy views of sex and you, that you write so beautifully about how, how do tell me, just start, maybe start with like the backstory of why you wrote the great sex rescue. It's such a great title. 
Yeah, sure. So I, I've been in the blogging space for, gosh, 15 years. Uh, I started off as a mommy blogger, you know, the typical parenting, organizing, housework stuff. And the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew. So I kind of became like the Christian sex person. Um, in 2012, I wrote the first edition of The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. We've since updated it. Um, I was writing books about sex. I was talking about sex all the time. But the one thing that I hadn't done was read other books written by other authors because I have this real fear of plagiarizing. And I figured they love Jesus. I love Jesus. We're all saying the same thing. Um, but I was finding over the years that people on my blog were still having all the same issues. And it didn't matter how much good stuff I said, they still had all the same issues. And so one Friday afternoon, I started actually reading um, Love and Respect, which is one of the best-selling, most used marriage curriculum in North American churches. And I call that like the defining moment in my in my ministry. It's like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room because I read the sex chapter and it said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. And the need is for physical release nothing about intimacy, nothing about anything other than his physical release. If he doesn't get release, he'll come under satanic attack and he'll have an affair. And there wasn't a single word in the book about how women can feel pleasure, about how sex is, is about more than just the physical. And I thought, maybe this is our problem. And so it prompted us um, over the next series of circumstances over the next few months where we couldn't get anyone to take us seriously <laughs> as we were talking about this. We decided that we would do the largest research project that's ever been done on evangelical women's marital and sexual satisfaction. So we surveyed 20,000 women and the results were the great sex rescue. It, it's amazing because when you are, when I was reading the book, I was blown away because yeah, you, you, you only surveyed women. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I thought the way that you talked about that was so intriguing because again, you feel like as you read through many of these marriage books, when it comes to, um, sex to your, to your point, it's often just dedicated primarily to the man. And I love just the sense of what you were bringing to the forefront after your learnings. What were some of the biggest learnings for you that kind of maybe just stood out that you were like, I, after, man, you, facts don't lie. Facts are mm -hmm. your friends. Were mm -hmm. there a couple that you thought just, you didn't expect overarching to be, um, as, as high, um, as they were in the survey? Yeah. Well, I'll give you, um, oh gosh. Okay. I'll give you two big things. One is something that we were really excited to find. And one is something where I changed the teaching that I was doing. So, wow. <laughs> you know, when I saw the data. Um, but what we did was we asked women all about their marital satisfaction, asked them all about their sexual satisfaction, and then we presented them with a bunch of different common teachings in evangelicalism to see if, if you believed something, if that affected your marital and sexual satisfaction, because we could compare women who did believe it with women who didn't believe it. Um, we found four big teachings that were really terrible. Um, but one of our outcome variables, one of the things we were trying to get at was um, why is it that evangelical women have twice the rate of sexual pain as the general population? Like the word vaginismus, no one even knows what that is, right? Everyone knows erectile dysfunction. Nobody knows vaginismus. We have a 22.6% of our evangelical women suffer from it. 7% to the point that penetration is impossible. 
Because it's so painful. Because basically the muscles in the vaginal wall get so tight that penetration is impossible. And this is a largely evangelical women problem. So we wanted to know why, like what, what's up with that? <laughs> and we found the reason or one of the main reasons. And it's what I call the obligation sex message. So when a woman believes um, that women are obligated to give their husband sex when their husbands want it, their chance of experiencing vaginismus increases to almost the same statistical effect as if they had been abused. What? Because women's bodies interpret obligation as trauma. Because think about it, like sex is supposed to be this deep knowing of two people. That is, that's what it says, Genesis 4 verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve. And that Hebrew, the root of that Hebrew word is the same one where David says, search me and know me, O God. Right? God is telling us that sex is supposed to be a deep, intimate knowing, that it isn't just physical. And if it's a knowing, it means both of you need to matter. But as soon as we put obligation onto it, we tell her, your needs don't matter. Your opinions, your experiences, your feelings don't matter. He has the right to use you however he wants. And, and you, you think about that. I mean, in my mind, I think about the, the amount of women who sit in our congregations, uh, the amount of men who sit in our congregations. And when we talk about this from the platform, or the stories that we tell from the platform or the resources that are out there mm -hmm. um, that many, many people have been reading and premarital counseling and, and all of the, the conversations um, you, you kind of, and you have a chapter, uh, your spouse is not your methadone, you know, mm -hmm. which I think is an mm -hmm. amazingly just mm -hmm. fantastic title for a chapter, but you have these senses where, oh my goodness, I, you can be telling a story and you can be describing something, but what if what if your your congregation, and especially the women, are hearing obligation? Mm -hmm. You were like you were introducing them to experience sex, not in the goodness, but actually in the invitation to trauma, and 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 that's that's the piece where, for someone like me, I I want people to see. Um, the joy, the gift, that 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 deep knowing that you're talking about, but I just feel like I see it done so poorly, yeah. and and then I think it just pushes me a little bit more to the sideline on the topic, which is pastoral malpractice. Help help us, like what would you if you you have this platform right now to speak to all of these pastors. And you've written an incredible book, incredible book. Every pastor, you need to read this book. Um, you and your spouse need to read this book. Um, there's so much wisdom in here. And it's it's going to mess with you because you're going to see all of these in your subconscious of what you've assumed and also maybe what you have um, subconsciously proclaimed from your platform. And, mm -hmm. and then how that has fallen on the ears and into the bodies of, of the women in your congregation. But Sheila, talk to us just, and for us who are writing sermons on sex, what do we need to be aware of? How do we do this well? Okay, so if you look at almost all the books about sex, or if you look at the way that pastors often talk about sex, what is the one big problem? Other than pornography, because let's take pornography out of the equation, but what is the one big problem that we often think is in people's bedrooms? 
I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous now. I'll, I'll, okay. Yeah, because I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, no. Here, it's, it's that um, men need sex and women don't have a high enough sex drive. Yeah. Yep. And, so, yep. and so men aren't getting the sex that they need and women aren't embracing this gift that they have, right? Yes. This is the teaching that changed for me too, because this is what I, I used to really talk to women about how you know, if he has a higher sex drive, you need to just jump in and it's really important. And this is, this is an important part of your marriage and don't give it up, et cetera. Okay. Throw all that out the window. <laughs> all of that goes out the window. And here's why. Um, we found, I'm going to list five things. Okay, everyone. So there's five things coming, but when women have high marital satisfaction, when they feel emotionally connected during sex, so they feel like intimate. And a lot of women don't. 18% of women said their primary emotion after sex is feeling used. Okay, so, so sex alone isn't going to cure anything. But when they feel emotionally connected during sex, when they frequently reach orgasm, when there's no porn use in the marriage, and when there's no sexual dysfunction, frequency pretty much takes care of itself. Wow. So if you have a woman who doesn't want sex, the answer is not to tell her, hey, you need to have more sex. You're supposed to look at that and say, okay, there's something going on here. Let's figure out what the problem is. Frequency is a symptom, not a problem. Yes. yes. And we have been talking about it like it's the problem and it's not. Um, we have a 40, here's, here's a number. I want you all to remember. I'm going to tell you a number. If you remember nothing else in this podcast, I want you to remember this number, 47. Okay, 47. <laughs> we have a 47 point orgasm gap in the evangelical church, meaning that 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a given sexual encounter. Only about 48% of women do. 47-point orgasm gap. So when you tell women, don't deprive your husband, when you tell women, you need to be having sex more, ask yourself, what is she getting out of it? Wow. The majority of women in your congregation are already being deprived. Because sex is not just intercourse, right? Like if we define sex as intercourse, she, her experience is secondary. She could be lying there making a grocery list in her head. She could be in emotional turmoil. She could be in physical pain. It still counts as having sex. So when you tell couples just have more sex and they think you mean intercourse, it's like what she experiences doesn't matter. So instead, here's what you do instead. You talk about sex as something which is mutual, you both want it, as something which is pleasurable for both, so she matters too, and is something which is intimate. And if it's not intimate, pleasurable for both, or mutual, then it's not really sex anyway, and 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't even apply. That's so good. Okay, go back to those five real quick, because this is, okay. and, and I'm thinking about the 47, and I'm thinking about the five, because again, you know, there's... um there's just so much I feel like where it is assumed and it is expected. And, you know, if, you know, um, I just think of all, even, even all of in the subconscious for me, um, the stuff that I didn't even grow up in a Christian home. Um, my parents came to faith later in life, but I would go to church. I was at a, a Christian school and, um, but it, but it was almost this like pressure with, mixed with purity culture mm -hmm. that like someday you're going to get married and it's going to be all worth it. 
It's almost like this, like, once you get to heaven, it's going to be all worth it. You live faithful here and heaven's going to be amazing. Perfect waves. It's just going to be surfing all the time. It's going to be glorious. Same thing with sex. Like once you get married and, and then all of a sudden it's like, you can go in there with all of that hidden expectation. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you experience, well, man, there, this is different. Um, and if you don't know those five to actually talk about, <laughs> you then obviously can do damage. And then you see a lot of guys not knowing how to deal with rejection. And so then that spirals them to number four, pornography or some other form, number five to dysfunction, because they don't necessarily know how to talk about it. And they don't know that deeper knowing and that, that, that sense of mutual, um, intimacy and connection and more than intercourse. And I, I, I find myself going, well, most of our family systems aren't talking about this. Most of our churches aren't talking about this in healthy ways. And then we're just plopping two people who are learning about vulnerability and intimacy in such a new way. And yet all they have is all of a lot of baggage from what they've learned in sermons and churches about waiting and from youth pastors in their experience growing up. And there's a, there's a sense of deconstructing a lot to reconstruct what I believe what you're describing in this healthy sense of intimacy. I go back to like pastoral sides. Um, for you, when you think about pastors who do this well, who talk about sex in a way that is honoring to um, women, honoring to the flourishing and the deep knowing, um, what do you, what do you find and what do you recommend to say, Hey, every pastor, I, this is, this is something I would recommend for you. Maybe, maybe you might say, I don't think you should talk about it on a Sunday yeah. morning. You know, I think it should be discussed more in around a great resource, like the great sex rescue in a small group or, but how to do that well. Um, yeah, that, that is, that is a difficult question. I was actually going to say a lot of this stuff doesn't need to be from the pulpit. Like pastors, you don't need to do everything. Um, you don't need to teach everything. And it's not always, it's not always appropriate. Quite frankly, I, I, you know, I raised two girls. One of them is my co-author on the great sex rescue, but, um, and when they were like 12, 13, I didn't want the pastor speaking explicitly from sex from the pulpit. So, you know, yes, there's certain things that just are not appropriate. I would say that in general, things that hurt that you do from the pulpit is anytime you do gender essentialism. So anytime you say things like, you know, men are like this, they're going to want sex and women, you really, you know, we know women just would rather just talk and we know women talk so much and men are the strong, silent type. There's no backing in research for that. Um, that is personality based. It is not gender based. Even the idea that men have a higher sex drive, uh, you know, on the whole, yes, but we found 58% of men have the higher sex drive in their marriage. 19% of women do. And in 23%, it's shared. So when we present it as like sex is a male need, you're alienating that 20% automatically where she has the higher sex drive. And you're, you're just setting a gender essentialism where like sex is a, is a male thing. And there's such a thing as self-fulfilling prophecies. <laughs> like, like, why do we spend all of this time telling women, you know, we know women don't like sex. We know, we know it's really guys who want sex and then women get married and we're like, why don't you want sex? <laughs> like, how about if we talk about this differently as 
Yeah. You know what? People are going to want sex in different ways and for different reasons. And the fun thing about marriage is you learn how to talk about it and figure it out. But the beautiful picture is one of intimacy and pleasure that you're experiencing together. And it doesn't need to be gendered. That's a huge thing. That's, that is so huge. And, and one of the pieces too is like, I think when you start to learn um, about spontaneous and responsive, when you when you start to, to have honest conversations about, well, let's just talk about that 47% um, discrepancy orgasm gap. Like I, I think sometimes in that, you know, spontaneous or responsive, um, there can be a desired discrepancy. I'm, but like, are we actually having conversations about that to go back to your five or are we actually just assuming, well, she should, she should. And then what damage that ends up doing. Um, I'm fascinated by this because, you know, oftentimes I'll go into to men's ministry groups and um, I did this recently. I sat down with a group of guys and they're awesome guys, amazing guys, but they're like fifties and they're business guys. They're amazing but I, I was like, what kind of group is this? Is this a, is this a, a group that just you guys hang out and like, you know, grill out, talk, watch sports or like, is this the kind of group that you just talk honestly about what's really going on? And, and they're like, oh yeah, we totally talk about it. And they, they started grilling me on some Bible questions. And so they're like, I'm like, well, can I have a question? And I just, I, I just started asking like, how do you all handle when there is a desired discrepancy if there is one? Mm-hmm. And where do you go? What do you do? How do you deal with rejection? Do you pout? Do you, or do you get curious? Like, and some of it was like based on, I had read your book and I was like, mm-hmm. I just wanted to see guys who were a decade older than me. How do they engage with this? And it was amazing is that, that the most of these guys were like, it creates a lot of shame. It creates a lot of frustration. I don't have the conversation. Um, every guy but one was willing to talk about it, which I thought was interesting. Um, and, and then they all said, no one ever, no one ever talks about this. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, you have these high charging business guys and no one's talking to them, but they're all assuming by culture are all assuming they're the only one um, and they don't have the tools and they don't know why their wife is wrestling with some of this stuff and they don't know how to ask. And I just was like, I was telling them about your book and I was like, guys, you're thinking, you're, you are thinking it's this, it's not. And tried to get them to think through a couple of the, the five that you had mentioned and told them about that, that gap. And they were like, wait, wait, what? And it was almost as if they were like, why didn't anybody ever tell us this? And that's, that's the piece where I'm going, how does that message get out in the healthiest ways possible? Um, and it's just because I, I feel like the church with purity culture and other places has done a lot of great harm, especially to women. Yeah, You know what I would say to pastors, especially this, this isn't about sermons, but a lot of pastors do premarital counseling. And when you talk about sex, you talk about how, you know, it's important and you got to do it and someone's going to want it more and you've got to keep it. It's, it's not the best message, but here's something that pastors are not going to like. I'm going to tell you a stat. This isn't in the Great Sex Rescue. It's in our subsequent books, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, but it's an uncomfortable stat. When we looked at women who had only ever had sex with their husbands, okay, so no other sexual 
partners and they had never been sexually abused. So this is it. Okay. And we compared women who had sex before the wedding to women who had sex after the wedding, who waited for the wedding. If you wait for the wedding, her chance of having vaginismus is 25% higher. So she has less sexual dysfunction if she has sex before marriage. Now, I am not saying you should have sex before marriage. But what I am saying is that the way that we do the honeymoon is setting couples up for failure. Because people who have sex before marriage, why do they have sex? Usually they're making out, right? They get carried away. She's aroused. They have sex. But what happens on the wedding night? You feel like, first of all, you're exhausted, right? Because it's been a really long day. And you feel like you have to. So there's a lot of obligation. And the words that we heard in our focus groups overwhelmingly from women who did wait was bewildering. It was bewildering. Like that's not a good word to describe your wedding night. No, not a good word at all. And I think the message that we really need to give to young couples is a threefold message about the honeymoon. Okay, stop telling them that they get to have sex on the honeymoon and start giving them three things to work on. First of all, just feeling comfortable. Just get comfortable naked. That takes a while, okay? Just get comfortable naked. Then work on her arousal because his is automatic. But figure out how her body works. You know, even bring her to orgasm before you even try intercourse. Figure out her arousal. And then and only then try intercourse. And for some people, that's going to be a one night thing. They're going to be able to work through all that in one night. And for some, it might take like a couple of weeks, but I'll tell you, if you do it in that order, you're going to have like decades of better sex. But if you don't do it in that order, there's going to be so much repair work to do. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a really neat study that came out of, um, I believe it was University of Toronto last year that found that women who orgasm the first time they have intercourse if you follow them later on, they have the same libidos as their partners. The reason women have lower libidos is because sex isn't good for them when they start it. And so your body says, I don't like this. Wow. Okay. Can I, can I ask a, like a pastoral question right here? This, because I'm putting myself, I, I officiate maybe like four or five weddings a year because um, mm-hmm. I want to be able to walk with the couple as well. And I've never done what you just described at all. Um, there's a sense of me like if I'm marrying a officiating a wedding for for two twenty five year olds, mm-hmm. you know, would you recommend hey pull the guy aside, have that conversation, or is it is it is it weird like here I am talking about this to both a, a woman. And a guy like just in the, and I'm, and there's part of me that I'm like, man, there's, there's moments where this has become so, we don't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So now like any kind of talker, like that feels just weird and awkward because nobody's ever talked about it, but there's also a sense of being, having that sense of pastoral responsibility. So in my mind, I was like, man, I, I should probably take those guys away, just grab coffee with them and just say, Hey, just this piece, but also, I don't know, just your, your, your kind of insight in that. Is yeah. it better for the both and? Um, I think it's better for the both and it depends. Um, yeah. but she needs to hear it too, because what will often happen is the guy is willing to wait, but she is feeling, um, panicky. 
She's like, if he doesn't get sex, I have done something wrong. Um, Remember that the vast majority of our Christian resources teach the 72-hour rule, what I call the 72-hour rule, uh, which is that men need sex every 72 hours or they will be tempted to watch porn, um, to lust, etc., we tried to trace that. Like, it's th- there is no medical literature that talks about this. We traced it, um, but we found it in something that James Dobson wrote in 1977. It wasn't based on anything, and yet you'll find it in Every Man's Battle, in Power of a Praying Wife, um, uh, in Sheet Music, in multiple of our books. Teach the 72 hour rule. And so, what do you think the 72 hours is? Like, what is it? Is it? Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Is it a three day? Like that's like I'm just I'm trying to figure out like where where did why why seventy two? I think it's supposed to be because like it takes seventy two hours for semen to replenish or something, you know, oh, and okay. and so then you're un, supposed to be uncomfortable. But we looked in the medical literature. Not all men are uncomfortable at 72 hours. For a lot of men, it takes like 10 days. Like it isn't, it, this is not a biological thing. Um, but this has been taught as if it is a thing. And, and women have heard this in so many of our books that men need sex. And if it's been difficult to wait, she can feel panicky. Like I have to provide this for him. And so even if he's willing to wait, she needs to be explicitly told it's okay. You matter. Yeah. You matter. Yeah, because so many women, if if um if pleasure isn't there, like if 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 he's trying the right, if he's trying what you think are the right things, and she's not feeling anything, she gets embarrassed. She thinks I'm just broken, so you just go ahead. And the more she says it's okay, don't worry about me, just go ahead. The more they're hurting their sex life for years. And if he says, well, I wanted to help her feel good, but she just told me not to. Why are you letting her do that? Like stop. <laughs> totally, 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 totally. Yes. Well, and I and I think too the another reason why I wanted to to have this this conversation with you is because you know I I've been able to have you know lead cohorts with with guys um, and and have conversations with different pastors around the country and you know it, when when marriage conversations come up um, you know so many pastors' wives. Um, feel this and a lot of guys. And so, so many, this isn't just how we communicate this to the congregation, but Mm. also I know for many of the pastors who listen to this, um, they're in their fifties and there is, uh, been a lot, there's probably 20, 30 years of bad messaging, Mm -hmm. um, and frustration and a lot of distance actually in the bedroom. And I think part of that piece is, man, how, you know, you write about this, uh, I think it's a two chapters go back to back, but like becoming more than just roommates and duty sex is not sexy. Mm-hmm. Like getting back, what would you say to the couples that maybe have a decade or two in the unhelpful, unhealthy duty sex messaging? Mm-hmm. How can they get back to that deep knowing from Genesis 4? Um. Yeah, this is challenging, but I'll tell you what our focus groups found is we talked to so many women who um, often couldn't reach orgasm. Some had sexual pain, uh, low desire, and often the obligation sex message was a part of it. And well, let me tell you, let me tell you Kay's story because I think it really fits in. So um, Kay actually had a really good sex life with her husband. Um, 
she reached orgasm. She enjoyed it. She wanted it. Everything was fine. But then she started having kids and uh, she had a lot of tearing after a child. She had postpartum depression. And after the third one, it just took her a long time to recover. But you know, once they were able to resume intercourse, she started initiating every 72 hours like she felt she was supposed to because of what the books told her. And this went on for about two years. She never reached orgasm again after that third child, um, just didn't want sex, didn't like it. And finally, she just couldn't take it anymore. And she turned to her husband and she said, I don't want to do this. And he had had no idea that she was having sex that she didn't want to do. And he was horrified. And he's like, babe, I never want to do something you don't want to do ever. And so from now on, if you're not in the mood, I don't want to have sex. But even if we're in the middle of sex and you change your mind, tell me and we will stop. And that's what they did. And over the next few months, he proved it to her that he could still be a decent person, even if she didn't have sex with him, that he wasn't going to be grumpy, that he wasn't going to treat her badly. And if in the middle of something, she said, nope, it's hurting or I don't want to, or I'm just, it, it's just not going to happen for me tonight. He rolled over and he went to sleep and her libido came back and her ability wow. to orgasm came back because you get rid of obligation. Obligation kills women's sexual response. Yes. And yet so often in the church, women are told, let me, let me give you some of the worst examples. Cause I don't think people understand because a lot of pastors haven't read the books that are meant for women, or they've been recommending these books without really realizing what's in them. But um, Every Man's Battle, for instance, that that told women that they are the methadone for their husband's sex addictions. It literally used the word methadone. Um, when he quits cold turkey, be like a merciful vial to meth- of methadone for him. So he's supposed to take all of his sexual energy and transfer it to you. So basically their view of sex is that instead of lusting after every woman, he gets to objectify just one woman. So she exists as a sexual object for him to use. I mean, what a terrible message. Or then there's um, there's sheet music, which talks about how uh, during her period, which is a difficult time for the husband. Okay. Yeah. Just let that one sink in for a minute. So her period's a difficult time for him that she can provide hand jobs or oral sex to get him through that five days so he doesn't watch porn because faithfulness is a two-person job. And he goes on to say that uh, during the postpartum phase, so when she's recovering from childbirth and multiple books tell women that while you're recovering from childbirth and you can't have sex, you should be providing other sexual favors. Intended for pleasure says you should be providing them at the same frequency as you had sex before. So she has just pushed a baby out. I mean, I couldn't walk for six weeks after having my first child. Um, You know, maybe she's had a C-section. She's had major surgery. She's not sleeping at night. Her milk is coming in. And these books are telling her and her husband that her main job is to make sure that he gets an orgasm at the same frequency as happened before. What, okay, so what does that do? What does that do in the brain of a woman? What does that do in the body? I mean, because it's like, it's like you say all this stuff and it's like, this is what, what guys have been reading mm-hmm. or hearing or assuming or expecting or pressuring and and these and and I love how you said that obligation kills sexual intimacy it just it that and and that's again why I think man every pastor you have to read the great sex rescue um because 
we have been taught lies and, and we have to learn how to recover what God intended. And what Sheila does with this is, is so, so powerful. But I just, I mean, something that was supposed to be a joy and a gift has just become a profound obligation and pressure. Mm-hmm. And the church has really been instrumental in that. Yeah, we turned sex into a male entitlement and a female obligation. Holy cow. Yeah. And I think the reason that we held on to obligation so much, because I've had conversations with some of the authors of these books, and they won't get rid of obligation because, no, you don't understand how much men need it. You don't understand. And, and if you get to the bottom of what they're saying, they're saying, if you don't have obligation, she isn't going to have sex. So they, they believe that women don't like sex. That is the fundamental belief that if left to their own devices, no woman would ever have sex. That's not true. It's not true. Yeah. 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 Like for pity's sake, God gave women a body part where the only purpose is pleasure. <laughs> like yeah. women do like sex. They do. They have sex drives, but we are largely killing those sex drives with the obligation message and with the idea that sex is primarily for men. And so women aren't experiencing any pleasure. Like why would you expect women to want sex if it doesn't feel good for them? And then why are we running around and blaming women for that? Yeah. Man, I, this, this is so, this is so, because what's, what's amazing is what it forces a lot of men to have to wrestle with is entitlement issues. Mm-hmm. How do you handle entitlement? And the harder, more beautiful work is on one side, how do you actually pursue your bride? Not in an entitled way, but in a, in a way of, like you said, Genesis 4, deep knowing and intimacy and connection. Um, that is just, that is just, I mean, when you said <laughs> you've taught men's entitlement and females obligation, yeah. that man, and, and the work you're doing, I, I think is so powerful because it's, it's, it's rescuing it and recovering what God actually intended. Mm-hmm. Um, what else, what else would you say? I mean, I, I you, you, you have just said a couple of things that I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, it just hits because n- not even that I read some of those books, but I can't, you know, even just um, recently there was um, Twitter storm over a book that was coming out and, and I, I, it was, it was all is the gospel coalition, beautiful mm-hmm. union, this whole book. Mm-hmm. But I just read like this, this first part of it. And I, I couldn't believe because it wasn't, it wasn't even just in the metaphor but it was where that metaphor could be taken yeah. that scared me as if you could say, and the, and the basic metaphor was like, as you enter a temple um, and as you enter your uh, a woman, as you bring an offering, as you release an offering unto the Lord. It's not, not verbatim, but that was the kind of uh, mm-hmm. the messaging. But I was like, now, now think about you're never, you're, you're not actually able to bring an offering to the Lord because your wife doesn't want to, or for the wife to be going, Oh, I, I'm not letting my husband bring an offering to the Lord. Yeah. I'm not being hospitable. That was it. She was supposed to be hospitable. Yes. Her vagina was supposed to be hospitable. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. 
<laughs> and and I and you just sit there and you just go, oh, like the the message is dangerous. The but it's all of what the body will keep score after, mm-hmm. and that and and yet that that is a subversive subconscious theology that is that is permeated mm-hmm. within sermons and and underlying messages and how women hear and understand and feel and i just i just found myself going oh we we just got this all wrong we just got this all wrong and that's why i think your resource is is so helpful um but it's the conversations that you're that you're leading whether on twitter whether through your blog and the fact that you actually work with your daughters and have these conversations i just absolutely like you've just normalized so much in <laughs> such beautiful ways but um yeah what else besides entitlement how 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 can men break free from the entitlement and how can pastors in your mind get away from preaching male entitlement and female obligation. Yeah. I think first of all, it is that recognition that women do have a sex drive. I think what we have done in the church is we have said men like sex and women like talking. And so women, if you want to talk, you need to give him sex so that he'll want to talk to you. And men, if you want sex, you need to talk to her. Um, as if, as if these are two completely different things. And what a lot of guys do like instead instead of encouraging men to be emotionally open and to be able to communicate we tell women this is how men communicate this is how they show love is through sex this is how they experience love is through sex no sex is a culmination of the relationship it does not create it sex needs to be the culmination of what you are already experiencing together and what happens in far too many couples is that It can be the woman too, but it primarily is the guy. They channel all of their needs for emotional intimacy into sex because they don't, they're not comfortable with emotional language. And so they have sex to feel connected rather than doing the actual work of connection. And then we encourage this because we say this is God ordained. This is the way that God made him. Um, and that's really doing the other message. And this would be a whole other podcast. And I would love to come back to do a whole other podcast on this. But the other message that we really do a disservice to is the idea that all men are visual. And so all men struggle with lust. Um, and that is, that is the other message that really kills women's sex drives. When women grow up hearing all men struggle with lust, even as teens, when they get married, their libido is lower. Wow. Even if they don't believe it as as adult women, even if they have deconstructed that belief, when you believe it as a teenager, when you're in youth group and you're taught this, when you hear it from the pulpit, you are now, all those teenage girls in your congregation, they are far more likely to have lower libidos later on. Because that's, an, that's, that's telling women, you are never going to be safe. Mm. This world is a dangerous place and all men, even the men that you want to feel safe with, you will never be safe with any of them. There's so much, there's so much there. I mean, I think even early first decade of my marriage, you know, I'll be, I'll be married 20 years and um, I think I really got into that. If then kind of theology, you know, if, 
If I, I, I give you emotional connection, then you should get, and, and if you yeah. give me this, then I should get, then I'll mm-hmm. give you that, you know? And it, it was just it, like, it got into that, like really um, unhealthy bifurcation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't intimacy. It was an, yeah. it was a transaction. Transactional, let's you know? just say, yeah. And, and so I think the, the real kind of movement and work um, has been, gosh, how, how when, we, and I love how you said that. It was just so powerful. We've almost God mandated this entitlement, but what it's done is it's prevented men from actually growing in intimacy and has prevented women from experiencing true flourishing and pleasure and knowing. And like, because all of a sudden it's like, I have to, this obligation instead of um, the two of them really opening up and discovering and walking a life. And I, I just, <clears throat> I think that's the, that's the dream I have for marriages. You mm-hmm. know, it's that you have these, and sometimes we, we, we just, the way that we use our language, the two become one. It's so, it's, it's, it's a beautiful mystery. It's a profound mystery as Paul writes, profound mystery, but it's not one just losing themselves. Mm-hmm. How, how does one still have the agency to join with and be teammates with the other. It's not just that one joining some male. Um, and I think that there, we've, we've lost this kind of integrated self understanding and agency. And again, just, I think reading this, I just, I realized, gosh, I, there's a lot of unlearning I have to still do. Um, and it was just super, super helpful, but I think your visual piece that that's a whole other kind of reality. And again, part of that gender, did you call it essentialism? Gender, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Where we just kind of like all men are visual, all men are visual. But when a, when a woman hears that, you know, the way that we tell the, the Bathsheba story for so long, we put it on her. That's not on her. It's yeah. not her fault. Um, and it's just that kind of messaging mixed with, you know, purity culture for so many years. We just didn't, we've, we didn't have the honest and human conversation, which I think you are engaging with. Yeah. Um, you, you're, you're actually uh, just released a new book and I'm, I'm like so curious about it. Um, talk about that. It's, it's, a, it's, it's not in the same vein, but you, you, you kind of bring it back yeah. to youth groups. Talk about this. Yeah. So what happened was after we released Great Sex Rescue, um, we had all kinds of of women and men coming to us saying, I feel so free. I feel so validated. I feel like this is, this is what I needed all along. And if, if you're wondering, seriously, just please go to Amazon, look at the reviews for the Great Sex Rescue, like just read the reviews because there's over 2000 and that's what they predominantly all say. But all these people were then saying, I have no idea what to say to my teenagers now because I don't want to spread the same harmful teachings, but I also don't want them to be totally promiscuous. So like, what do I do? Um, So that became our new book. So we surveyed another 7,000 women to find out about their experiences and the teachings they heard as teenagers and what are the lifelong effects on their relationships, on their mental health, on their self-esteem, et cetera, of those messages. So if we want, if we want women to be flourishing, to be in good marriages, to not be in abusive marriages, um, or if they're not married, to be to, to be happy and fulfilled and and strong in their faith, you know, what do we need to tell them as teens? And so that's what this is about. It's called She Deserves Better, Raising Girls to Resist Toxic Teachings on Self, Sex, and Speaking Up. And it's great for youth, every youth pastor needs to read this book, anyone who works with youth. 
I, I, I just absolutely love this because all of us know this as, you know, we, we kind of move from, um, you know, this is the first time we're preaching to five different generations, mm-hmm. um, from the greatest generation yeah. ever, all the way down to Gen Z, you know, you, and yet when you say a word like transparency, every generation has its own definition. <laughs> when you talk about sex, everyone has their own kind of understanding and as, as I think we've had our eyes opened, I know like for me, I, m- my sex talk was just as a kid was don't get a girl pregnant. That was it. Right. I, I didn't know anything <laughs> else. Yeah. It was nothing else. But to, there was no conversation about pleasure. There was no, there was nothing that what you're describing in the great sex rescue, but now it's like you have kids and I've got a high schooler and I've got a, a daughter who's about to turn 10. Hat. How do you actually teach that? And for many people who like to your point, who learn a new way and but they don't necessarily know how to talk about it themselves because it's so mm-hmm. new, they revert back to what they were taught. Yeah. And it's not actually it, it basically continues on the general generational brokenness. So I love that you're actually engaged in this. And yes, every youth pastor, because you know this is a conversation that you can be able to walk and help parents with. This could be a great parent resource for you to actually engage with the parents in your middle school and high school ministry, just to walk that through with them, but also just to be aware of, man, how how do we do this in a way that's gonna be really, really helpful for these women too? speak up and to actually have healthy understanding of self and sex. So mm-hmm. Sheila, you, you are, um, you are fantastic. I mean, seriously, like you are fire on Twitter. You're like one of my favorite follows on Twitter. <laughs> um, but I, but I think honestly, pastors, you should, you should be following and reading her stuff. Um, because again, um, she's, she's, she's prompting conversations and questions and has a, an understanding of like language and words and stories that again um, is going to help you understand the majority of your audience on a Sunday morning. Yeah. And, and if you, if you, if you don't have that in the back of your head and you could be speaking words that have unintended consequences, not just in your church, but in your congregants bedroom. Yeah. And I think what she's really doing is helping people like me helping people all over the world recover what God intended, but doing it in a way that's really honest, really human, um, and has a deep love and appreciation for people, but also for God and Christ and his word. And so Sheila, thank you so much. Where can people find you and your work? Cause it's really, really great and important work. Yeah. So just go to baremarriage.com. That's my website. I've got new blog posts up almost every day. Um, you'll find our books there. Great Sex Rescue, She Deserves Better. Um, Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. They're all they're all there. And then our podcast is Bare Marriage, and that's every Thursday. So you can awesome. listen in on that. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are, are you guys ever going to do any like... Um, this is we didn't even talk about this before. Um, <laughs> but are you are you guys ever going to do any... Um, how would I say? Like... DVD, um, like just like curriculum based, like how to walk through. Have you ever thought about like, hey, how to how to actually do a small group kind of around mm-hmm. um, this, or ever seen churches 
do anything like that? We do have a free um, video series for small groups to work through Great Sex Rescue. So if you go to baremarriage.com, click on books, click on Great Sex Rescue, the video series is there. Um, we are looking at doing more roundtables for pastors just on, on how to talk about this, on how to identify harmful books. Um, because honestly, maybe this is just some encouragement for pastors listening, but when women heard harmful things, the majority of them said they didn't hear it from pastors. They heard it from the books that they wow. read or wow. from the women's Bible studies. Okay. Um, so, it, you know, <laughs> that's good news and that's bad news. The good news is like, it's not necessarily the pastors that are giving the women the bad stuff, but the the bad news is you could be doing an amazing job and not realizing the resources that people are consuming in your church. So, yeah, we just need some more discernment and and to teach our congregants discernment because a lot of the resources we have aren't that good. Yeah. Well, one of the other plugs, and then I'll let you go, but one of the other plugs that I that I really respected is I love when um, at the end of a, a book, when it's definitely like a, a topic that you want and need to learn more about. I think one of, um, in your appendix, you had uh, the books that we we studied uh, for mm-hmm. this. And I just I just so appreciated like you just kind of detailing that, giving a little bit of synopsis about that. It was super, <laughs> super helpful. And I, again, mm-hmm. just uh, respect the way that you write. And I love even how you said like, I didn't read very many books because I was afraid of plagiarism. <laughs> I feel that same way. But I appreciated in the research how you kind of uh, alluded to what to be looking for and what to, what to be yeah. run from. Mm-hmm. So Sheila, thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful for your words, your wisdom, and uh, many blessings to you. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to the Craft and Character Podcast. I hope that this conversation was beneficial for you. I know it was for me. And honestly, the way in which Sheila talks about um, the conversation of sex, the truth of sex, there was just multiple moments while she was talking that I was like taking copious notes because um, I need to do better in this. And maybe you feel the same way. Uh, You heard at the end of the podcast that she has a new book out called She Deserves Better. And I think that is an incredible, just very, very crucial and important read, especially if you are working in student ministries or you're a parent, um, because this is an opportunity to raise girls to resist toxic teachings on sex, self and learning the art of speaking up. So uh, friends, thanks so much for your support of this podcast. Um, If you know another pastor who needs to listen to this one, hey, why why not send them a text, send them a link. Um, Anytime that you can review um, or share, that just does a lot for us. And and also um, check out PT. I know we got uh, Father's Day coming up and there's some amazing, amazing articles uh, on the Preaching Today site. I love teaming up with them. They believe in this podcast. They believe in you. They care about the heart, the soul, and the preaching of the pastor. So much love, everyone. We'll see you soon. Grace and peace.